2: Love. Oh, and Love, he's got a real chance now, Peter and Love. John Walk will take the penalty.
1: Up goes Dion Dublin!
3: Unknown goal from Ruddock. Four-by-break oh, here for Kiwabia.
2: Panister and Bruce in the queue again.
3: Bruce scores!
2: Goal leg! Hit leg! Hit leg over the top! Now!
0: Now you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly? Yes or no? Yes. Only oh, oh.
1: Haddon, no. Hello and welcome to Quickly, Kevin. Will he score? It's Series Eleven, Episode Nine. Steve McManaman, a really very exciting. I'm Chris Gold. Joining me, as always, Josh Whitcomb. Hello. And things can only get better. It's Michael Maldon. Hello can't think about D-Ream now without thinking about uh, Brian Cox, eh?
2: Do you think? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's what I, th- I, th- I think now. Plugging away on those keys. That's a weird thing, isn't
2: it? Yeah, I mean, I don't remember seeing him in D-Ream, if you know what I mean. I only remember that main guy, <laughs> Peter, whatever he was called. That would be an interesting
1: question. Does anyone remember Brian Cox in D-Ream? Did anyone like watch D-Ream perform and
2: go, that keyboard this is absolutely smashing Well, this. I wonder if when Brian Cox, yeah, anyone's like, is that the guy from D-Ream? <laughs> That is a classic um, misnomer of when that song came out. A lot of people danced in 1987, but of course it came out much earlier. Did it? Yeah, because then it was reused. Wow. Um, Anyway, shall we get on with the 90 o'clock news?
4: From the headquarters of ITN, News at Ten...
1: With Chris skull Philippe Albert makes an astonishing appearance I just thought we could have one story today because I just thought this Philippe Albert stuff we put on our Instagram Philippe Albert turned up at the West Ham game I mean I'm hanging out about 20 foot away from Philippe Albert, stealing a little picture of a monitor that he's being interviewed on. But Philippe Albert looks completely different. I put it on our Instagram as a little competition, thinking, no one's going to get this. Someone got it after 22 seconds. Yes, yeah, so does uh, he look
2: completely different? That's he the looks completely...
1: There we go. Well, I sent it, I sent it around. What do you think? Did, did you know well, that was, was?
2: You sent it around with the caption, this is Philippe Albert, so it was difficult to know whether I'd have recognised it as Philippe Albert. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, I, I, interestingly,
4: because I was catching up on the sort of back and forth on that, somebody somewhere had said something about Neil Shippley in the message chain, and I glanced at it and I thought, oh yeah, it's Neil Shippley yeah. <laughs> So I had no idea until you just said this that that's Philippe Albert.
2: Was Philippe Albert good? Like, it's he, a great question, I, isn't it? I remember him being... He felt, he felt very cultured, didn't he? But he did play for Newcastle, who weren't that good at defending. So I I, I don't know enough about football to know whether Philippe Albert... Was he, like, a great player? I've just sent through a couple more. So a couple of more 90s footballers that I just,
1: like, I find astonishing. I'll just put them on uh, Put them on our chat. Do you know either of those people are? No, we'll put them on our Instagram. Any ideas, Michael? Oh, the second one's Steve Howie. The second one is Steve Howie. That's what Steve Howie looks like now. The first one, Eil Berkovic. Oh, wow. So I thought, here's a bit of fun. Based on Philip Albert and Ail Berkovich transformation, which 90s footballers now look completely different to how they did in their oh, playing send career? send them in, and
2: we'll put them on our Instagram. Send them in,
1: and we'll put them on our Instagram. I'm desperate to see what some 90s, like esoteric 90s footballers look like now.
2: Who's had the biggest transformation? Don't send in Neil Shipley. Don't send in Neil Shipley. <laughs> Don't send in Neil Shipley. Okay shall we have some uh, correspondence I'm Jim Rosenthal and this is the electronic Postbag.
1: you've got mail
2: right from David Standen hello I was faintly surprised when at the start of the James Brown episode Mark Morrison was mentioned and the anecdote supplied was one about him hiring a lookalike for his community service while an undoubtedly hilarious episode in the life of the artist behind Return of the Mac there's another that seems more relevant to your show The story in the question is about a legal feud between Mark Morrison and Kevin Campbell. What? Yes, in 2004, the then-Everton striker signed Morrison to his label, Too Wicked. They released one (laughs) single for Morrison, uh, Just a Man, Stroke Backstabbers, reaching the lofty heights of number 48 in the UK charts, uh, described as more of a whimper than a bang by the Manchester Evening News. But the scheduled album to follow never materialised until Mark Morrison announced... That he was releasing it on another label. Notionally, because Two Wicked didn't give him the support he needed. This led to Campbell getting an injunction to stop the album being released, though Morrison eventually won the right to release it, with Innocent Man coming out on his own label in 2006, an entire decade after Return of the Mac. Of the affair, Campbell is quoted as saying, Mark Morrison was given everything he asked for by Two Wicked, but it seems that he couldn't help but return to his old ways. I've always dreamt of starting a record label, but now Mark Morrison has spoiled that dream for me. There is no loyalty in this business, just greed. Morrison later announced a bid to become mayor of Leicester in 2020 before ending his political ambitions in September 2022 due to perceived lack of support from Leicester City Council and the community he grew up in. (laughs) Interesting Um, story, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's so great. the, The name of the record label, Too
2: Wicked. You know, like if you were writing a, two, a sitcom the about a 90s... Yeah. Number two, and then Wicked is spelt without a C. <laughs> That's
1: perfect. That is perfect 90s R&B label material.
2: Kevin Campbell's a bit of a pundit now, isn't he? Yeah. You occasionally do you know, see him
1: popping up as a pundit. And do you know, here's one... This is a do I remember this right. I'm sure I've seen, like, a, a documentary, like a mini documentary about Kevin Campbell, like one of those 30-minute interview things that Sky does, And he built a massive home and he called it Highbury. It's called Highbury. Kevin Campbell did. I'm sure that's right. Wow. Tell me if I'm wrong, but that's a do I remember this right. I'm sure he lives in a
2: a big mansion. He's called Highbury. Well, fair enough. Is Kevin Campbell a player that slightly didn't fulfil his potential or was he just not quite good enough to play for England and stuff?
4: Yeah. I think he's one of those ones... He's he's one of those players that sort of has got the most... Goals, Premier League goals, or top flight goals, without ever getting an England cap. I don't remember him being part of the conversation because the people around him were probably just too good at the time.
2: Yeah. yeah,
1: and I mean that's that that period at Arsenal. You're growing in the shadow of Ian Wright, essentially, aren't you? Like you've got a, a once in a generation talent there in Ian Wright, and it's it's tricky to be coming through that. But i look at just looking at his goal record. 95 to 98 when he went to Forest, he scored 32 goals in 80 games.
2: It's not bad. It's not bad. Not we bad. We're very into goal records, aren't we? Right. Yeah. Update on Mawson International. <laughs> the company whose name is emblazoned on the hats of Manchester United and Big Ron when they won trophies in the early 90s. Hi, guys. The story is actually more interesting than you think. The man at the centre of the controversy was Manchester United physio Jim McGregor. He agreed to wear a Mawson International cap in the 1990 FA Cup final. So sure enough, if you look at any footage of United winning the trophies in the early 90s, not just he was wearing one, but most of the players too. They wore them for the 1991 Cup Winners Cup final, 92 League Cup final, culminating in quickly Kevin's very and Steve Bruce wearing one on the night they collected the Premier trophy. Therefore, Big Ron must have been tipped the wink by his old physio to get in on the Mawson International Action. That's interesting. We still don't know what Mawson International is, though, do we? <laughs> that's the issue. We well, know it's no, now got links with Jim as... McGregor, the physio.
1: Did we establish it was a recruiters?
2: Yeah, it's the recruitment experts. OK, we'll go with that. Um, but but it's interesting, because what's the connection to football? Do you know what I mean? It's so, so specific. It is an odd one, isn't it? How much... They, cause surely that's quite an expensive thing to buy as well, isn't it? Like... So to say, could you wear this cap at the point in your career has been leading to feels quite an odd one, right? You're like, yeah. well, I'm not going to do that for 20 quid, am I? Or maybe they just liked the sheer kind of being associated with it. If you've got a motive, hello at quicklykevin.com. Yes, please do let us know. Now, if you want to get in touch, this is how.
1: Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at QuicklyKevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com
2: Now, before our guest, it's time to tell you what is happening at Quickly Kevin Towers for the 2022 World Cup. You might remember, last was it last year? Yeah, it was, wasn't it? 2021. The Euros. God, that, feels, that feels longer than that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tell you what, though. It's been a long 18 months for Gareth Southgate. It really (laughs) has. But anyway, it hasn't been a long 18 months for Quickly Kevin because we're basically going to do exactly the same after the success of our Euros coverage. We will be doing over on slice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. We will be doing three episodes a week throughout the tournament. We'll be covering the tournament from a fan's point of view, from our point of view. There'll be very little tactical analysis. We're not going head-to-head with Jonathan Wilson. We'll basically be covering what it's like to follow this World Cup as fans at home in the UK. We'll have lots of our favourite guests on, popping in. We'll be covering the England games. We're covering the Wales games, etc, etc, etc. Monday's episodes will be on available for everyone and the other two episodes of the week will be available for... Quickly Kevin, fan club members, at another slice.com forward slash quickly Kevin. Last time we did it, it was genuinely one of the favourite things we've ever done on this show. It was a joy to spend the month doing it. And uh, I would say it was the soundtrack to the month for a lot of people, wasn't it? Was. It was. And do you know what? Like I've occasionally gone back and listened to those, like those little
1: time capsules of that tournament. The England-Germany game, oh,
2: great We're basically trying to do what they do on the Chris Evans radio show or the Big Breakfast or any of those things in the 90s that got you excited to be in the bubble of the World Cup. We will be excited. We will not be offering tactical analysis. We are the place, if you are a fan of the England team, the Wales team, or just the World Cup in general. Go over to anotherslice.com forward slash... Quickly, Kevin, to sign up now, ready for Qatar 2022. Plus, on top of that, November's special fan club episode is an interview with former England manager Sam Allardyce. But let's be honest, it's mainly about Bolton, Blackpool and Notts County because that's what was going on in the
4: 90s. (laughs) There's something a little bit bittersweet about, uh, in my eyes, having Big Sam as our guest that month as the wheels come off of Gareth Southgate's England machine. And there, as our guest, is the man who could and should have led us to glory for this World Cup.
2: Oh, my God.
1: Here we go. <laughs> Just think it. Like, but for a pint of wine in an alternative dimension, we've sat down with Gareth Southgate in November to talk about the Euro 96 while Big Sam is
2: flying out to Qatar. That could have happened. Only Michael would look, would be going through the era of our most successful England manager since Elf Ramsey and still want Big Sam. <laughs> um, I will say this about the Big Sam episode. Josh
1: emerged from it saying, with real nostalgia for that Bolton team. I really so did.
2: I, I got a whole new yeah, respect And I did for as well, to be team. fair. Anyway, if you want our unrivaled World Cup coverage, I've said it a million times, you know how to sign up by now. But now, great guest this week. Absolute legend of the 90s. Absolutely love him. Steve McManaman.
1: Today's guest is quite simply one of the greatest players of the 90s. I'm going to say it personally, I think the greatest player of the 90s. He started his (laughs) career at Liverpool, central to the club's mid-90s rebuild, at one point being ever-present across four consecutive seasons. Upon moving to Madrid, he won two Champions Leagues and made himself a club legend, becoming one of the most important players in a squad filled with huge stars. And along the way, he was Pelé's favourite player at Euro 96 and also had superb 90s hair, Please welcome Steve McManaman.
3: Cheers, boys. That's a really nice introduction. The hair is the most important thing. <laughs> most important
1: thing. <laughs> and you've still got it. You haven't, you've never really, you're like
3: Brian May. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pelle get my name wrong during the 96 Euros as well. That was, that was always a highlight of my career. But yeah, yeah. The hair's, the hair's still there. It's hanging on in there. Yes, it's hanging on in
1: there. Have you ever thought about doing anything else? you ever ch- chopped it short? Nothing? Never even thought yes, about
3: it. it? It just looked ridiculous when I chopped it short. I chopped it short when I played at Liverpool once and it just looked awful. Just started curling up really tight and I just thought, oh no, I have to, it's better long. I think now... Now I'm a bit older and uh, a bit more grey. It's a bit more. Um, it's a bit more uh, flat. So I could. I could probably um, cut it down now. To be honest, and of course, the older you get, you shouldn't have long hair, should you? So it will be coming off. Well, I don't know. There's an element of like Bill Nye or someone who yeah, looks like it,
2: yeah when it, you've got the old long hair. Um, yeah, I'm going. I'm going for the Michael Heseltine look. I think <laughs> that's what I want. I think um, you brought up, you brought up an Everton fan.
3: Did you go you know, watch them in the eighties? What was good to Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I went to watch them at the at the um, most successful time. I was incredibly lucky, Josh. My father was a big Evertonian, so I was born in seventy two. So you know, I was um, I was that traditional. Oh, my dad used to carry me over the turnstiles, which he did, and I used to go in the in the enclosure at Goodison Park. And then when I was old enough. I became a junior Evertonian, you know, a sort of season ticket for um, the youngsters that you had your own particular place in the Gladys Street. My father took me to Wembley um, when I was 12, when Everton won the FA Cup in 84, when, you know, Andy Gray scored, yeah. and Charps, you know, so really magical times, to be honest. Um, yeah. I went to I went to Wembley 85, I went to Wembley 86, when wow. I, I cried my eyes out when Liverpool beat Everton um, in 86. Um, and then, you know, I joined Liverpool then. So eighty-eight. I mean, I was—I must have been at Wembley every single year. Because then eighty-eight, when Liverpool lost to Wimbledon, and then eighty-nine was the Hillsborough final, when Everton met Liverpool again. So it was a very, but it was a hard life in Liverpool in the in the eighties. But I, I think football kept it afloat because Everton and Liverpool were winning leagues, were winning cups, and they seemed to be at Wembley every single year between them. So. It was a really important time for football and in the 80s and living living in Liverpool. There's that documentary, I
2: don't know if you've seen it, I think it's about the League Cup final in 84 or something, where it follows the Liverpool and Everton fans and teams down. And you do see the fans talk about, like, this we feel like the country kind of looks down on us a bit yeah. and this is our way of showing who we are and having, like, a pride in our city and showing them
3: that we do exist and stuff. Do yeah, I think of... so. Yeah, I think so. I think economically it was really bad. Socially it was really bad. You know, it's a very working-class background. And back then with the militants and, the, you know, the, the, the fighting with, uh, with Margaret Thatcher that was going on, it was a very poor city. You know, unemployment was through the roof and the dock workers you know, were made, on a, were made redundant and uh, it was very hard to, you know, to live there. So football, you know, people work, they grafted till Monday to Friday and their saving grace was, you know, going to the pub, watching the teams play on weekends and thankfully they were successful. So it gave it give the people a little bit of happiness of a weekend before, before it started again on, on the Monday mornings, going back to work and trying to find jobs.
1: Here's a question that I've, I'm desperate to ask. How good were you in school?
3: You must have been brilliant. Yeah, I was, very, I was very good. But the only thing I would say, the only caveat I would answer was that I was incredibly small in school. I didn't really grow until I became a man, really. And, I, I you know, I, I reached puberty quite late, 15, 16. So it was always a battle. My, my skill set was always great. I was always quick. I was a very good runner. So I had the sort of the talents. It, the, only, the only thing was, is he going to grow? Because I was very thin and I was very small. So it was, has he got the frame? Can he grow? Will he grow? You know, so so, so people kept with me. I always played um, above my age in, in, in school and for the Liverpool schoolboys, which was the, the city schoolboys who they chose from. So I was always talented. It was just that 14 and 15 some people in my team or people I was playing against, you know, they were growing into men. They had, you know, big hairs, hairs on the chest and starting to grow beards. And I was still this young, scrawny, you know, um, um, tiny lad. From, um, so I, it was just this willy-grow, really willy-grow. Really you know, eventually, when I joined Liverpool as an apprentice from 16 to 18, in those two years, I just literally caught up with everybody and then went past them because I was, um, I was much more talented, you know, without being, been sick of antic. I was I was a lot more talented. So once I grew up physically and then grew up and caught them up in terms of speeds and physique, um my talents then started to show and that's when I used to, that's when I moved forward. It's a weird thing to have like pressure on you because you can't do anything about yeah, it. You're like
2: just am I gonna cry? Yeah, my,
3: fa- my father wasn't, you know, my father was about five nine, five, ten. You know, of course I had size in you know in the background, like everybody has if you go through the generations of your parents and your grandparents, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But it was just a case of would I grow physically and um and once I did, you know, I was like Bandy, I shot up overnight, but I still had these long legs. And then it was just a case of growing into my frame a little bit. How did you choose? You were offered a contract to
2: Everton, but you chose Liverpool. How, was it difficult to put your career ahead of your kind of heart
3: in that situation? Is that how you saw it? Yes, initially, yes. I was desperate to sign for Everton because I was such a huge fan. Such a huge fan! I could have signed for a lot of a lot of um, clubs around the country, but I always wanted to sign for a Liverpool club because I would have been very very homesick. You know, I love my parents. Mm. I love my, I loved where I lived in in Liverpool, and there was never a case of me leaving home. So it was it was a choice between Everton and Liverpool. I went to see Everton. They offered me terms. You know, for you know for a a, a schoolboy um, a, a agreement, and then it would have been a, a YTS agreement, and then it was you know, quite easy. I went into the, the training ground and spoke to the relevant people in that department and they offered me this deal. I said, okay, fine, thank you very much. And then I went to see Liverpool and the Liverpool scout, Jim Aspinall, took me to Anfield and wanted to speak to me. And then he, he takes me into a room and, and Kenny Dalglish is sitting there behind the desk. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was with my father. And, you know, Kenny Dalglish was the Liverpool manager at the time, of course, a wonderful, incredible football player. And... You know, he'd done his homework. It was as simple as that. He knew what I did. He knew how I played. He said the right things. Um, He knew my career. You know, of course, he'd been prepped, but he knew it. Uh, And I was just you know, in awe, really, absolutely in awe, and my father was, oh, right. and when he says that, you know, when you're, you know, 14, 14, and a half, and he's telling you how he's watching me play here and watching me play there, and he sees me as a Liverpool player in the future, and he wants me to develop with them. I mean, it's all nonsense, of course it is, but he's just saying the right things to us.
2: Do you, do you know at the time that it's like, he's not bullshitting you, but he's kind of, or do you think, like, has he been to
3: see you, do you think, well, No, point? I don't think he has, but I think he'd been prepped by, you know the scouts what to say because they really want me to join, yeah. and that that that's yeah. that little sprinkle of magic which makes you. Yeah, and then there was like a pair of football boots at the side of his um of his desk, and I asked them, you know, what football boots they were because they were they were these like Puma boots, but I've never seen a pair like them in my life. They had gold on and white on, and back then it was just you know black boots with white stripes, like it should be now instead of all ridiculous <laughs> <Yeah>. colours. So. <laughs> And he said to me, oh, um, yeah, I, I wore them in the, um, the Intercontinental Cup final, w- which is the game when the champions of Europe played the champions of South America. It's now called, we, I think, they, and they played it in Tokyo anyway back then. Yeah. And um, now they play it in different venues. And he said, you can take them. And I was just like, oh, my word. I mean, I was oh. a size four at the time. I think they were an eight, but I thought, I'm wearing them and I'm taking them. <laughs> and um, and we, we left the room and we were with the scouts. And the scout, you know, said all the right things. And we we left Anfield and my dad said, you have to sign for Liverpool, mate. You have to sign for Liverpool. And I just said, I just said, I know. I know, you know, they just made me sort of turn from, you know, mad staunch blue. But, you know, it was just back then, Liverpool were ahead of Everton in that recruiting business. You know, Sir Alex Ferguson took it on when he he was manager of Man United, going to see parents and going that extra mile just to make sure you get the kids you want. Because Robbie Fowler was an Evertonian, you know, um, Jamie Callagher was an Evertonian, Michael Owen was an Evertonian, but they all turned up at Liverpool for some reason.
0: This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
2: What what age do you stop looking out for the Everton results and start? looking I still, looking
3: look, out- I still look, I, to be honest, Josh, I still look out for them now. Frank oh, do you? Uh, yeah, Frank Lampard's a good friend of mine. You
0: know, yeah. I've got
3: good, I've got good mates who are season ticket holders. My nephew's a season ticket holder. You know, so of course I always look out for them. I'm not one of these mad Liverpool fans who wants Everton to be relegated and good, some, good You're as good as you know Jamie Carragher. to the ground? No, no, no. <laughs> I um, you know, I've got too many friends and too many associates involved with clubs now, so I'm quite you know I'm quite. I I know too many people and I don't want them to fail at their job or, you know, risk losing employment if they get relegated or this or that. So, you know, um, as long as the team that I... Uh, enjoy watching as long as they succeed you know everybody else you know fails to a certain extent you win the league and everybody else loses so it's not a problem
1: yeah and Goodison Park obviously is going to be gone soon are you going to go back like a, le- a bit leisurely you
3: know take some time out and have a look around take some time and look at those old stone toilets that still smell <laughs> <laughs> I, was there, I was there two weeks ago when Everton played Liverpool and um, it's still a crazy vociferous place but you know apart from the history and you know, walking down, you, you can only walk down the tunnel one at a time. It's that narrow. I think they need—I think they need an uplift now. And the new stadium, what they're building, and hopefully will will finally be built, and they will have the funds to finish it off. Because you know they're, they're in a bit of trouble, Everton, at the moment, financially, with with everything in the owner. So I hope it's finished. It's going to be an incredible, incredible football stadium when it is finished. I just hope Everton are in the right place, in the right league. I'm fighting on all fronts because it's, um, it'll only benefit the city. You know they've also they've already done a lot of regeneration down at the docks where Everton Stadium's going to be built, and I've seen the mock-up plans and the finished uh, the finished plans of it all, and it looks incredible. You're, you turn up and then you're playing under Kenny Dalglish, or
2: you arrive Kenny Dalglish the manager, and then 1990 out of nowhere Kenny Dalglish kind of leaves. So it felt from the outside like it was out of nowhere. What can you remember
3: that day in the in the club? Yeah, it was it was a shock. It was a huge shock to be very honest. I mean, I was involved with the team. I'd, I'd played my debut under Kenny, so I was mm-hmm. always in and around the team for about a year or so. And I was involved in that game when he, you know, the four four game. Yeah, I, 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 I actually wasn't involved in the, in the team at the time. And it, the, the replay game, I was involved in the squad. So it was a it was a um, it was a huge shock. I don't think anybody was expecting it. But you don't expect anybody to walk away from football. But you can imagine after 89 and the toll it took um, with the Hillsborough disaster, and Kenny was very, you know, at the forefront of many things, going to a lot of funerals and speaking to a lot of families. So you just don't know how it affects a lot of people. I know it affected a lot of the players at the time. And me being an apprentice and walking around Anfield and seeing the flowers on, I mean, I was at Hillsborough myself. So it affected the whole... It affected the whole of Liverpool um, in general. It affected everybody who had family associated and Liverpool fans who went to the game, and then you know, seeing the floral wreaths at at um, at Anfield and in the cop, and then all over the pitch, you just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You can see how it affected a lot of the players who went to a lot of funerals. So um, yeah. you know, it, you just don't know what mindset it takes. And the fact that Kenny was you know the manager and he was the, you know the, the focal point of Liverpool FC at the time, it, it must have played a real hard toll on.
1: Yeah, so Kenny Kenny's a kind of a creative player and I could see why he would like you. We're replacing him, Graham Souness, not so much of a creative player.
3: Was it scary? He's a scary man. Was it scary for you? I got on very well with Sui, to be honest. I, I think because I was trying to get into the team and trying to play more and more, you know, I was literally on my best behaviour. You know, I, I think the problem was when... Graham was trying to tell some of the, you know, the, the late 20s, 30-year-old players what to do and how they should behave and how they should prepare when these players had won every trophy under the sun and yeah. won it many, many times. Yeah. So if I say to you, oh, don't do that. I know you might be you might be great in your job, but I want you to change it now. You'd end up telling me to, you know, F yeah. off or something like that. So there was a lot of conflict. And I think yeah. that's where the team started to um, disintegrate, you know, Graham... Was had a lot of, he was, you know, of course, he was an aggressive person himself. He'd say that quite happily. And in his mind, if someone fought back against them, he'd just say, Well, go then. So he, he sold a lot of the experienced players and he probably sold too many. I think if you ask him, he probably sold too many for me. That was fine. And a lot of the younger players, because we were thrust then back into the team. But mm. you know, four or five into a team at that age was probably too many as well. It's all right, bedding one or two good players into a team full of experience but when you're putting four or five young kids into yeah. a team it's it's a lot harder it's a lot harder.
2: He um one of the player older players who was like you know best winger in the country really at that time and certainly in the late 80s was John Barnes. Yes. Was he a big influence on
3: you? Did he help you out and stuff? Yes, he was a legend Barnes, yes. I cleaned his boots when I was an apprentice and he was the player I l- you know, really looked up to when I was, you know, yeah. when I was 16, watching Liverpool on a Saturday when I'd go as an apprentice because he was, a, as you said, he was a magical, magical player. He was arguably one of the best players Liverpool have ever had in the history. Yeah. Uh, I just thought he was exceptional. And it also introduced me to what football's like and how fickle it's like, because I'd be sitting in the crowd and I'd, I'd think this you know, this guy is the most incredible footballer. And then he might do something wrong and then you've got people at the sides of you shouting, screaming, calling him every name under the sun saying he's the worst. And then you've got people on the other side when he do, does something well saying how great he is. And I just thought, well, listen up, this is the life of a football player. You yeah. may think you're good or this player may think you're good, but there's someone else who thinks you're rubbish. So um, you know, it, it just it just got me up here. I mean, I was quite level-headed and quite sensible, and never got carried away with um, with plaudits or criticism. I was quite, I was quite, you know, right in the, right in the middle. Really, it never really affected me. But Barnes used to help me all the time. I'd ask him questions and look at, you know, I'd, I'd see the way he plays. I'd try to train and and I'd see what he did. I mean, I, I was even doing that when I was, you know. In, in my late 20s, even going to Real Madrid, if I could learn something off one of my teammates and try and learn it, if I saw the skill, which I thought, wow, that really helped me that, you know, I'd be trying to copy in it. So I was instantly doing that with all the Liverpool players because when I was training with them in 88 and 89 and 90, they were the best around, you know, they were the best. So actually to train with them, I was I was training with the best players. So you were always, always learning because if you weren't learning and you weren't keeping up with them, you were out and you were back with the reserves. So it was constant. It was a constant test.
1: It's it's a really interesting point you've raised there. And it's something that I've always thought about you is that you're you're quite clever. You're, you're cultured in a way like great. People always talk about Graham Rasso <laughs> being quite clever. I always thought you were in a similar kind of ilk. There was th- decisions you made in your career, and what you've just said there about learning. You don't fit that typical footballer mould of the nineties. You seem to have a bit more about you. Did you did you feel like that? Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't because I was incredibly clever or I felt that I was more clever than anybody else. I just didn't fit with a lot of the stereotypes that were around at the time. I don't now, you know, I don't do social media. I'm not interested in all the fame and fortune that, you know, people have, you know, ex players commenting on every single bit of information so it makes the papers. I just can't be interested in it all. I want to do my job and I want to go home to my family and I want to take the kids to school and I want to watch them play football and. You know, and I wanna watch the girls play hockey or whatever they play and, and you know, I'm I'm quite happy to stay in the
2: background really. You um you're the only footballer I know who'd make a reference to Michael Hesseltine a minute into an interview. <laughs> 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 That's a first for us. <laughs> we we had Peter Reed on. He wouldn't. He said he wouldn't even say the words. Margaret Thatcher. Uh, no. I, <laughs> sorry, listen, I
3: didn't. I didn't say I liked him. I just uh, no, like no, him. no. <laughs> just his hair. Just, 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 just like his, just his hair. your hair still on his head at his age. That's
2: all. Um, you, in the nineteen ninety two, so guess nineteen ninety two FA Cup final against Sunderland, and this was the first of uh, many uh, man of the match performances you put in in cup finals. Um, you were the youngest player on the pitch as well. Was that like that day? Did you get nerves? Do you
3: write? How do you? Why do you rise to those occasions so well? Well, yeah, I probably I probably was nervous, Josh, because I think you'd be inhuman if you weren't oh. nervous. But you know, six years prior, I went to Wembley for the first time with my father. You know, to watch Everton win the win the um, as I said to you before to win the FA Cup. You know, when yeah. I was in awe of the players who were on the pitch doing it. You know, I was in awe of you know the Everton players and the you know the Peter Reeds and the Graham Sharp's and the players. Being successful and watching them, so to actually be there, you know, six, you know, eight years later, sorry, in '92, you know, it's just an incredibly proud moment that we were favourites to win the game because we played a team who were in the division lower than us. So you, you know, I, I just remember trying to enjoy it. I probably was absolutely terrified at the time, but you just have to get on with it. You know, it's like you, if you go on stage you're nervous, you know, you can do the job. Oh, I, th- I think nerves help. Yeah, exactly. It's it's and it's how you handle them. Yeah. You know, we're ne- we're nervous when we were when we were in school doing exams we were nervous when you know I was representing the school as a cross-country runner so these things you just have it's normal to have them and you have to contain it and you have to go out and then you know show show what you can do really
4: knocked out wide to McManaman who is indeed starting on the right hand side this time takes on Atkinson gets past him and
0: flips it into Michael thomas thomas is shot oh that's a fine goal.
2: Do you remember what you did after the game? Like, was it a
3: huge celebration? Yeah, but I was only young and I was a little bit naive. So I think we went back to the, the hotel, I think. And my family, if I can remember rightly, my family came and I just stayed in my hotel. I actually hurt my back uh, when Michael Thomas scored the goal. So I think I was in agony a little bit, to be very honest. But it was very, for me as a young 20-year-old, and I was still only a young 20-year-old, It was quite subdued. You know, I wasn't a big let's go out and party like it's, like you know, crazy. I was, um, I just went back to the hotel, tried to take it all in, you know, saw my family and things like that. So um, that's what I can remember anyway. I don't think I went out or anything. And then we were back to Liverpool the following day to sort of do a tour around the city because it was the FA Cup. It's like the final game of the season. Yeah, And then I remember enjoying myself on the, you know, on the coach going around the city and stuff. That's just, you know, quite a surreal experience when you Waving a friend's carrying the FA Cup on this open top, open <laughs> top, open top bus. It's just weird, isn't it? You know? One of the
2: legends of the dressing room at the time was Bruce Grobbelaar. Yeah. I imagine you know where this question is going. How awkward is it in the dressing room after you've kind of exchanged blows with the teammate on the pitch?
3: You know what? It was fine. Was it? Yeah, because it happens all the time and it should happen all the time. You know, it happens in training, people kick each other, people fight. But you know, in the in those days, the, the information never got out into the press, like everything seems to seep out nowadays. But there must have been fights every other day at the time. Someone has a bad tackle, you know, someone makes a fool of somebody and doesn't like it. So on the pitch, I don't mind him shouting at me and me shouting back, because he was actually right in his in his in his premise. He <laughs> shouts at me because I didn't clear the ball properly, <laughs> which resulted which resulted in a goal. But it was just the way he said it and I, you know, shouted back at him and then he responded, which he probably shouldn't have. Um but I've got no problem with that. You know, if someone makes a mistake, I expect to be shouted at. That's just the, the life of, of a footballer. You know, you can't be too um you can't be too soft about things, can you?
1: Yeah, yeah, but it's a brave thing to shout back at Grobbelaar. Of all the people to shout back at Grobbelaar in 90s, he's <laughs> you know, it, scary, isn't he? He's
3: scary man. Yeah, of course, yeah. And I, I took it and I probably shouted a few expletives back at him, like you do, as you're just a response. Because you're, you're. I was upset in my own mind. I was upset myself, you know, because we're 1-0 down, and I think it was at the time, in a derby match. So I was, you know, I was distraught myself. You make a big mistake, you know about it Especially if you lose the game You know about it for weeks on end When you live in Liverpool So I shouted back at him And then he's as Which is the thing I knew I knew the mistake he was shouting at I knew I, I was wrong And I knew I didn't want to do it again So it was just a reaction And he reacted again then And it just it got it into a little bit of a Pushing and shoving match But it was fine afterwards It was fine
2: And Bruce are going absolutely mad With Steve McManaman. It was a very, very poor clearance, but that reaction is a bit over the top, to put it mildly. One of the nicest people, it seems, that you came across in your career was Roy Evans, who took over from Graham Souness. Yeah, I loved him, yeah. hes I mean, I know you're not on social media, but I'd say I follow him on Instagram and he seems like a <laughs> lovely bloke who's got <laughs> a lovely life. He seems...
3: <laughs> he's always on holiday, which is the good thing. He's always on a cruise, he's on a cruise ship somewhere there,
2: but... <laughs> Was he a really nice bloke in the? And it's that.
3: Did that make you want to play for him in that yes, way? Yes, he'd been at Liverpool for you know thirty years before I arrived as a player and then as a coach and then as a physio. You know, we didn't really have physios back then, so Ronnie Moran and Roy Evans used to run on the pitch and you know throw water on your, whatever injury you've got. <laughs> I mean, that's what used to happen. So we'd been through yeah. every realm of of every position across the boards. Yeah. To him, for him to end up as Liverpool manager I was filled a bit for him he was, a, he was a great man and he was a great manager and he was just slightly unlucky at times yeah um, he was really close to yeah, he winning was, the- yeah. he was he was and I think if you know if we, it's hard isn't it you know you get close to winning but you, you know only one team wins the league every year and you know, as I said to you before you know, Man City are dominant at the minute. They win and everybody else loses. No matter how close you get, you still lose. yeah still forgotten about and you only talk about the winners. And that's what it was at the time. I mean, we were probably one player short, two players short. Yeah. You know, a little bit of mentality short, a little bit of attitude problem short. That's not got nothing to do with Roy Evans. He's the manager no. and he sends the players out. And, you know, as a player, you should go out and want to do your best every time you get on the pitch. He's, he's part of that boot
2: room tradition. Um, I've seen pictures of the boot room. It looks horrible. Yeah, it was just
3: a, yeah, it was just a tiny little room where the boots were hung up, you know, a, a, and this size of the room was where we used to clean the boots. But it was a tiny, you know, a tiny little, you know, nothing room if you see it. You know, it's this magical yeah. room as if, like, the Wizards of Oz lives in there. It's it just a couple of chairs, a table, a few Pirelli calendars on the wall, and about a 1,000 pairs of football. So nothing, nothing. You know, crazy. It's just that Liverpool was successful, and after games, it was a place where they'd invite the uh, the other manager and the other staff, and they'd have a little drink while you know you're waiting for the crowds to clear and you know have a bit of a chat. And I think that was the most important thing. It was a friendly place where you could go yeah. after games and you know bend each other's ears about football and stuff because they were incredibly knowledgeable at the time. You know that, that group of people who who, um, who were at Liverpool is that is that boot room gone
1: now? Just knocked it down, have they?
3: Yeah, yeah. I, it I mean, it was, it. it was still there It was still there for a long time. But once they redeveloped the main stands and turned it into, the, you know, this massive beer moth that it is now, it's it's gone. Yeah. I mean, they've kept a room there, but it's not there as as the traditional boot room used to be.
1: You'd think it'd be a listed building or something, wouldn't you? You'd think <laughs> like.
2: <laughs> not when you try to put another five thousand seats in the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> You, you then get to the League Cup final, man of the match again. Stanley Matthews says he, you remind him of himself.
3: <laughs> yeah, that was nice. Yeah. I mean, I met him, yeah, and it was it was really it was really nice. And again, I wasn't... It, it's great to um, to get the plaudits like that, you know, to be man of the match. But the most important thing was to win, Josh. That was all. You know, mm. the, we'd won in 92, we won in 95. We hadn't won enough because of the traditions of Liverpool Football Club. So the most important thing was to try and get over the line and win a trophy. You know, win a trophy for Roy Evans, you know, win a trophy for Graham Souness. It was great. But the most important thing was to win. You know, I'm more than happy. You know, the fact that I scored two and I got mad in a match was, of course, brilliant, brilliant. But, um, you know, the joy of just winning the game and bringing home another trophy, that was all important because that's all I was, you know, that's all you're interested in if you're a football fan, aren't you? You just want to win. You know, you want to see your team if you can, if you're lucky enough to support a team that can challenge for trophies, you just want them to, you know, go to Wembley and win a trophy and celebrate with all your friends, and you know that's all. Um, that's all I was thinking about, really.
0: Redknapp
2: to McManaman. Oh, good play here by McManaman. He might finish it here. A super second goal. You're part of that new generation of young players coming through, specifically you, Redknapp and Fowler would be the three that people Mm. remember the most. Fowler was just, like, burst onto the scene more Mm. than almost any other player. Yeah. Was it obvious... That he was incredible from yeah. the day one before he was even in the team. Was it just obvious yeah, that this guy... I mean,
3: I I've I've known Robbie for a long, long time. When I was Liverpool schoolboys under fourteens, he was playing at the under-eleven. So I always I always knew him. He had a similar background to me. He was from Tox, the Thousand Kirkdale, his, his father had similar beliefs to my father. So we were always very close. So yeah, you could see when you know, when I was 18 and he was 14 15, you knew he was very good. It was just whether he kept on progressing. And then when you're 20 and he's 16, 17, he's in, he's in the team. And that that carried on, you know, to Michael Owen and then carried on to Steve and then carried on to Jamie Carragher. You know, you knew the good players. And the good thing you have with talented youngsters, you put them with the big boys straight away and you see if they sink or swim. But Robbie was, a, you know, a real good character around the place and a brilliant goal scorer. And then, as soon as yeah. he got into the team, all he did was just, you know, just score goal after goal after goal after goal. So, cemented himself at an early age as, you know, as a, as a superstar.
2: I think that Liverpool team of the, that, like that mid nineties, was so exciting. Yeah. Like there was so, so amazing football. Also involved in of the best game of that era, the four three against um, Newcastle. Yeah. What was that night like? And was it weird helping out Man U? Did that... Did you...
0: <laughs> was that
2: horrible?
3: Of course it was. Subconsciously, you don't think of that, of course. But you need... We were still trying to get back into the title race. And, you know, as we did at the time, we we got back into the title race by winning that game and then promptly lost, I think, to Coventry the very next game, in, in an awful display. And that was us then. You know, the highs and lows at the time. Not not real good consistency. But I, I've watched the game again since. And, um, you know, you can see why the managers... that Roy Evans went mad at the end of the game, you know, to us. because Just because of the, the 22 players on the pitch just lost control of the game. You couldn't... You know, it just went attack, defend, attack. It just went up and down. Yeah. You know, if you see it, Newcastle had a 1,000 chances as well. And Les Ferdinand could have easily scored a winner later on and when David Seaman scored. Or he could have scored. He could have went 4-3. The good thing about that particular game was that they were a great team. We we, both, we beat them the year later, four three, but you know we we battered them that day and you should have won seven-nil. But that the first one with Les and, and people like that and Ginola, you know, they were yeah, they were a great team and they were riding high. And um, it was a pity they never won the league, to be very honest, because they deserved to the way the way they played and the way um, the way Kevin wants to wants the game to be played.
1: Speaking of Man United, I don't, have you ever seen the doc, documentaries of uh, Alex Ferguson around this time? And when he's doing team talks, preparing to face Liverpool, he's always singling out Steve McManaman. <laughs> have you ever noticed that?
3: And, I've like- seen this, somebody, somebody sent me a clip about it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah and I think he tried to sign you later on in his
3: career didn't he like he seemed to be obsessed with you <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that but I don't know whether he tried to sign me later on or early on in his career I don't I don't necessarily think so I mean it was it's a it's a new point anyway because i there's, I'd never ever ever have gone there so I don't think he'd have ever come asking to be very honest I think I'd made it quite clear at the time that there was no chance of ever being for man united but yeah it, you know the man he is and the achievements he's had and the players he's worked with for him you know to single me out at times to to try and stop me looking at it now it's um you know it's it's a really nice compliment to be very honest you get to the fa cup final again we we're, we're going to do a we're going to do an interview here where we don't
2: mention the white suits we've decided we <laughs> feel like
0: <laughs> no we feel like it's, it's been talked about right too
2: much uh, i don't
3: mind it to be honest because do you not? no because, I, because at because the, at, the, at the time if you looked at any of us after the game, after a game, you know, some of the suits that people were wearing then, green suits and, you know, check crazy Czech suits in Japan and all that. I looked at any of the fashion back then. And it was, you know, it was, it was, when you look at it generationally, it's, it's awful. And, you know, the, the suits were, the suits were horrible. If you looked at Man United, they wore black and they, their suits were awful as well. But it's just that, it's just that, it's just that, it's just that they, were, they had like these horrible waistcoats on. It's just that, it's just that they won the game and I, I fully understand that. But at the time, you know, I didn't have a choice in the suits, you know, whether I liked it or loads, it didn't yeah. matter. You know, the captains or the people in charge got the suits, chose the suits and that was it. You know, in 92, we probably wore suits. I can't remember what they were like because we won. <laughs> Same in 95, yeah. we got suits. I can't remember what they were like because we won. But as soon as you lose, you remember every you remember everything about the day.
1: I can't help but ask the question, do you still have it? I'm sorry, Josh. Well, I have no, to I ask. Don't, I don't
3: and I've been asked that many times, mate. I don't know. I, I know I, I know I don't have it. I don't know where it went. I probably left it in the hotel after the game. I was so just dist- <laughs> I was so distraught in losing to Manchester United. God. I just went I went back to the hotel. I, I think a few people went out. I just stayed in the room all night. And I can't remember what happened to the suit that you know, it's it probably was in the bin. <laughs> Anything to do with that day is quickly banished to me. Be-
2: even pass a move, it's the Liverpool groove. Can you not even listen to that anymore? I can't the, listen to
3: uh, that, cup- mate. That, that's assumption, that. Go Robbie, go Robbie, go. can't listen to that anymore. Man.
2: Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> you score some incredible goals uh, in your time at Liverpool. One of the best is against Celtic in the UEFA Cup, where you basically run full length of the pitch from kind of, it's almost like the right back spot, isn't it? The, all the way mm. in. What point in your run are you thinking, this is on here. I'm going to go, I'm going to score a goal here. Like, um, are you conscious in those situations of
3: what's going on? Is it pure instinct? Yeah, I'm conscious. It's instinct. I mean, you just, you, um, as you're running with the ball, you're trying to run into space. You know, initially I probably thought I need to get it bound this person who's closing me down in that right back area. And once that happens, and someone closed, I knew I could, I think I, I cut inside him. I can't even remember. But then then the space opens up. So I just keep traveling, to be honest. You know, I am keep running and running and running. And it's when, if someone closed me down or if two people closed me down, I probably would have passed it. But the fact that I had the, I was able then to keep on running. And once you get to the sort of the, the danger area, the penalty area, they, if they start backing off, that's when you get to a point where, can I pass it to somebody or do I take the shot on? And you 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 know, you're always try and find the best possible outcome. And at that time, because I was central in the goal, it was to take the shot on, really. And, you know, um, you know, thankfully it went in because that was the goal that we, you know, I, I think that made it 2-2. And then in the second leg, we drew nil-nil, So um, it was a really important
2: goal. At this time, to go back to kind of the start of your England career, you, you make your debut under Terry Venables, 1994. Mm. Terry Venables but he, he he brought he got
3: so much out of you he's a brilliant manager for he was you a br- brilliant manager brilliant manager but at the time there were stories about him wasn't he you know about his nightclub in London whatever or something else something else so he was always, he was always on the back foot in trying to protect himself and you know the, the, the FA didn't like any skeletons in anybody's closet so you know even after a wonderful Euro campaign you knew that he was, he was always going to have to leave and it was really sad because he was a fantastic manager, you know he changed game, he changed formations and games throughout that tournament. He was a brilliant man manager. The people he had with him, the choice of staff that he had with him, were, were excellent. And it was a really, um, it was a really happy time, really in, in an England setup. And you know, there's not many times you said that, in, even in '98 and 2000s and stuff. There was little cliques forming, but '96 was a happy time for everybody. I think definitely, it felt like the squad was completely
2: bonded and one of the things that a lot of people say I don't know whether you agree with this is that all the shit that you were getting from the tabloids and the build up actually bound the squad together
3: stronger yeah I think so I think so because there was a you know back then it was a real free for all and after our trip to um, China and and Hong Kong and the dentist chair and then there were stories about me wrecking the plane me and Robbie Fowler wrecking the plane which was of course completely false it was really hard to take, and it actually made it easier. You know, when we had this concerted um, effort that we wouldn't speak to the the written media, it actually made our lives a lot a lot better. Because you'd play the game, and they'd all want quotes, and you just walk past them.
2: Oh wow! And it was
3: actually quite nice because back then, whatever you said, it got turned into something that you didn't say. So doing a press conference in, in for England was awful because you'd get up there and you'd have fifty of the media in front of you, and you know, you knew no matter what you said. It would be turned into something else, or the headline would be made, and the journalist would say, "Oh, I didn't write It's not me who makes the headlines. It's the headline maker back in." So it just wasn't a pleasant experience. So actually, to not have to answer questions to the um, to the written media was um, it, it was it was a weight off everybody's shoulders. Was that a group squad decision then? Yes, I think it was. If, if I'm right, we spoke to the the tele to televised press. We spoke to the television because you know you when you get them filmed, you say what you say, and that's it. So I think we spoke to the cameras. And um, but any that went in the newspapers, I'm almost certain we didn't speak to them as a as a group.
0: Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May fifth.
2: Paul Gascoigne was obviously central to that ninety-six squad. What was it like hanging out with Paul Gascoigne for a month? Was he as exciting <laughs> a character as
3: it as it he, felt? Yes, he was a lovely man. He yeah. was mad as a hatter. He was brilliant. He was hard. He was tired ty- he was tiring because he, he he'd just had boundless amounts of energy. And you know, he me and Bobby Fowler were very close to him, but you know, he, he didn't sleep very often. Uh, Because he didn't need to. So to stay up with him, and he, you know, he was like a child let's go and do this, let's go and have a play, game of pool, let's go and play table tennis, let's do this, let's do that. And you're like, what? I need to go to sleep. But the fact that we were together in a hotel um, for four to five weeks, his enthusiasm and his, you know, is at times he was so, so funny. So he was, you know, to a certain extent, he was like the glue that just kept everybody together. And then you could slip off and, you know, go and have a sleep or go and get a bit of rest but it was constantly fun which is um, yeah. the most important thing because the games take care of themselves the games come around every what four days you might do a bit of training in the morning then you, it's a long time just to spend in a hotel when you're the only people in it you know for certainly for five weeks so to have someone like him you know he's incredibly infectious Um yeah, a, a incredible footballer as well so it was um, it was it was really looking back it was really important that he was there and he was of course, he had the stand-up moments as well in the tournament. You
2: have this kind of memory of Euro '96, as or like the the cultural memory of it now is, is this kind of three weeks of utter glory. But we drew <laughs> after the first game. We drew with Switzerland. Yeah, yeah. It was this very negative atmosphere, and you had a week until the Scotland game. What do you remember that week? Was that really tense?
3: Yes, of course it was because you know you're the you're the the hosts in your draw. It was a bit of a damn script the first game. You know, yeah. it was like one-one. Oh, we supposed to, you're supposed to win that game because we're at home and at at Wembley. You know, that wasn't the start we wanted. And then the pressure builds. Then because if you lose to Scotland, it's you know you could be out of the tournament. Or you know, so you knew everything was riding on that game. So you could certainly feel it, certainly yeah. feel it. And even the Scotland game, which we won, it was you know at the time it was very close. It could have went either way. Yeah, I felt it really explode when we beat Holland. But the Scotland game, they were excellent. We knew each other, and sometimes you cancel each other out when you know you know each other so well. Um, and we got a little bit of fortune that day. They missed the pen, and then Gaza went and scored that wonderful goal, and it sort of ignited it ignited everybody then because we, beat, you know, we'd won the sort of the Battle of Britain. Yeah. And, and then you know the Holland game took care of itself because they were a great team. You know, they were sort of all oh, this this is the hard game, so there wasn't that much pressure on us when you're not supposed to win. Does that make sense? And when we turned them over good and proper, that's when, you know, everywhere just sort of went mad then. When you were 4-0 up against Holland, was there any
2: point when you were like turning to each other and going, this is fucking incredible, isn't
0: it? Absolutely.
3: (laughs) When you know you're going to win the game, you know, when you know you've gone past, you know, 2-0, is still a little bit cagey, even though you know you're playing well, because we've all been in games where you've been pegged back. But then 3-0 and then 4-0, you're like, you know, you know you're going to win the game then. That's the most important thing. So you know you're going to top the group. You know, little did we know that goal from Holland stopped Scotland from qualifying, which would have been amazing, but you know, they were a really good team. So to to be so dominant over them was brilliant brilliant at You know, we played really well in the game. That was the most important thing.
1: And just to wind back just to wind back to the Scotland game. So the start of Euro ninety six, but before it, you're in Hong Kong for that big night out, and then you're part of that iconic celebration when Gaza scores against Scotland, spraying the water bottle. I wondered yeah. is is that the photo you've had to sign most? of all your whole career is it that one picture a, a lot, the number one
3: well there's a, a lot of them that's one there's another one where they have to pick up Robbie Fowler where he's trying to snort a line a, a line <laughs> <laughs> I refuse I, re- I refuse to sign them I refuse oh, to sign that. I say oh no I can't sign that um <laughs> So, the, yeah, certainly the Gaza one is, um, it, yeah, it's, it's very prominent, yeah. It's very prominent when after have to sign forward yeah. Was it planned or did he just do it there and then? No, I think, I think it, no, it was planned, I think. I think it was planned. I mean, you, you know, I think everybody plans things, wears T-shirts and stuff like that. And, you know, you have to win the game and score goals to do that, don't you? You know, and then you celebrate by doing that. But there's many a player who probably wears a t shirt and they lose and he doesn't score. And then he just goes back into the dressing room <laughs> and takes the t shirt off. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think it was planned. Of course, Gaz had, had a relationship with a lot of the Scottish players anyway, didn't he? He knew a lot of them. So, um, you know, Coisty and things like that, they we were good friends. So it meant, it, it probably meant more to him than it did. I mean, the game was, the magnitude of the game was huge, but it probably meant a little bit more personally to him. So for him to score over Colin Henry and past Andy Gore and whatever, it, it, it was. Um, Yeah, it was brilliant, brilliant.
2: And here's Gascoigne. Brilliant play! Oh! Take a bow for that! That's unbelievable! And in a minute, it's all gone England's way. Seaman at one end, Gascoigne at the other. An absolute glory for Terry Venable's team. You won't see a better goal than that in any international
1: tournament. Just one thing on that photo, what makes it so great is you're spraying the bottle, but you really give it a bit of welly and it's going all over his face. It's exploding
3: (laughs) over his face. It looks so good. Well, I think the funny thing is is that I think there's only one bottle and two people are doing that with imaginary bottles. That's that's how how choreographed it was. (laughs) On that Scotland
2: game, did you see the ball move at the penalty? Were you aware of that? Oh, oh God, no. Of course (laughs) not. Did you hear Yuri Geller in a helicopter over the stadium?
3: Oh, no, we all have to thank Yuri for his marvellous work on that day, you know. (laughs) It wasn't David Seaman at all. It was
2: Yuri Geller. On one other plan we heard, Darren Anderton told us that were you to score a golden goal in Euro 96, the plan was the players were just going to all run off the pitch and down the tunnel.
3: (laughs) How did you heard (laughs) that? Well, I hope so. I was on the pitch with, them. I would have been left on my own. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I didn't. I didn't. I, to be honest, I can't. I can't remember. You know. Again, right. I it's one of those things, isn't it? That you know, we were so close to getting the golden goal when we played. Um, when we played Germany, and Gaza was and Darren was. You know, it's just heartbreaking when you see how close it could have been. Um, and it would have been it would have been brilliant just to score and run off wouldn't it you know no, just because it was that that was quite it was a, it was a very surreal tournament with that with that um with that golden goal thing wasn't it when germany scored and they won it was like well that's a bit weird yeah yeah so it was a very strange um rule at the time and it was you know it quickly got banished again didn't it
2: yeah it was it was a, a bizarre kind of thing really yeah. in the germany semi final which i mean i don't know is probably the most kind of heartbreaking game of in England's history to an extent. Uh, you go up one nil up after five minutes. Mm. Is there anything, because in my head as a fan, the moment that happened in 96 and in t- 2018, and again in 2021 or whatever it was, mm. I just think we're going to win the Euros. This yeah. is definitely going to happen. This is meant to, is there any part of you that thinks this is going to happen? Or are you too in the game?
3: Yeah, I'm too, I was too in the game. Um... I felt we were the better team. I actually felt we were not the better team when we beat Spain in the previous round. I thought they were better than us and that just happens in football. And I thought we were the better team against Germany and I was confident that we would beat them. And then, then you, you know, you get knocked out. The flip side is we're a better team and lose and then, you know, and we, we beat Spain the other way around. So, but I was very confident going into Spain and then the, the other semi-final I would have been equally as confident of, win, of winning the final, but I didn't look too far ahead because... England Germany takes you know a whole new meaning to itself, doesn't it? That type of game. Yeah. So I, I was um, I was very much in the game. You know we got off to a great start, but it was you know you, you just had to finish the, finish the job off. Really. Do you ever do you ever watch the highlights of that game? Do you ever go back and watch it? Yeah, I very re- to be very honest, mate. I very rarely watch any of my
2: old football stuff. To be very honest, you don't pour yourself a glass of red wine and watch Liverpool four Newcastle three. <laughs> put, my, um,
3: <laughs> put my Hugh Hefner smoking jacket on and go and do it. <laughs> No, no, I don't, know. <laughs> unfortunately I don't, but it's, you know, it's a thought going forward now from now on, but no, I don't, I, you know, no, I, I very rarely watch it, a lot of the time people tell me, you know, what happened, like, you know, oh, that was, you scored a good goal against X team, and I'll go, okay, what was that, you know, what was it like, so, you know, I'm, um, I'm not one for sort of a lot of nostalgia, you know, as in my memories, you know, I can remember things that happened, of course, but I can't remember a lot of just incidents that happened yeah. in certain games yeah
2: one of the nicest things i read about your england care, career is that you go to france 98 um and you you, you played you only played 17 minutes but in his autobiography david beckham kind of makes a specific point that you hung around and played snooker with him after his sending off and that really helped him get through it do you do you remember that
3: yeah i mean i was i was never a great um i was never a great sleeper like early sleeper you know my body clock was i was better awake and then I'd go to bed quite late. So I was always awake and I was always playing. In um, In France, we in the hotel we had, we had like a games room with music and things like that, you know, machines and pool and table tennis. So I was always there really hanging around because I didn't want to just, you know, retire to my room because it was quite boring in my room. I'd spent most of the day in there. So I I mean, I can't remember that particular point if Bex has said that, but yeah, I was always playing pool and hanging around and always trying to have a laugh and a joke and try and keep morale high because you know, people do miss the families. You've not been knocked out of the tournaments and things like that. You know, you're seeing the Argentinians on the bus next to us, taking the tops taking the tops off and oh, swinging them around and punching the ceiling because, of course, see them celebrating on... I mean, the bus was, you know, two metres apart, so we're sitting oh. there bereft and morbid and morose, and they're oh, there God. going crazy, punching, winds as punching. So it, I remember it for that... Um, so it was a really hard night when you get back to the hotel, you know. So um, I always try to, you know, keep people on the toes and keep a smile on your face because you have to have, um, you know, a moment of clarity about it all, don't you? Speaking of
1: like international rivalries, your last game um, for England is the five-one against Germany. Last oh, yeah, competitive yeah, yeah. game. Last competitive yeah. game. Like,
3: uh, what a night! Yeah, I mean again to go there and win that type of game and for Michael to score those goals and Steven scored, didn't he? A, a shot from early on outside the game. Any you know, anytime you beat a rival and beat them comfortably in, in an iconic stadium like that in Munich, it was um you know it was a really important game for us. But again, it, looking back, all all you ever thought about was not the particular game, it's just qualification, because you know everything was a qualification for something. The Euros, the World Cup, the Euros, the World Cup. So that's all it was. So, to you know, to beat them the way we did was, of course, brilliant.
0: Here for now, Scores. Back up. Scotch is on his way
1: but He's Heskey up with it. Evan Heskey. Is this going to be a number one? It is. Would you believe it? 5 1 to England. Heskey on the score sheet now.
2: You moved to Madrid from Liverpool. Who and um, this was like, bef- like this was quite unknown. Like it was rare that a player would move to La Liga, yeah. an English player. I can't. I don't know who the one before, like the players before that would have done that. But you sign a pre-contract with Real Madrid, and then you have to kind of play out your time at Liverpool. Was that a weird period of time?
3: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, I'd spoken. You know, I for instance, I'd spoken to John Barnes, and he wanted. He, I think he. would you'll have to ask Barnsley if it's true, but I always thought that he wanted to leave Liverpool and go and play in Italy. And then, unfortunately, he was yeah. his Achilles playing for England. And oh. um, he missed about nine, ten months of the season because that was a really bad injury back then. So, you know, he stayed at Liverpool, of course, because you can't move when you're injured. So, it was always the dilemma of, I wanted to leave, I told Liverpool that I wanted to leave, which was fine, but... If I didn't have if I didn't sign a pre contract and I got injured in the January, the February or the March, you know, I would have effectively then had to stay with Liverpool after telling them that I'd want to leave. Yeah. So then you, you can't win. So once you tell them, you then have to sort of go the whole way. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and that, that was that was the, the reasoning for signing a pre contract. You know, I was then joining Real Madrid. I got a bad injury and I was out for a year. I was still gonna be joining Real Madrid rather than you know Liverpool could have effectively said to me at the end of that contract if I got injured will like you're off now you know and I am not with Liverpool then if they wanted to do that you know so I had to I to cover myself professionally then that's why I signed yeah. the pre contract
1: so I've seen Jamie Carragher talk about the fact so you let your contract run down at Liverpool but I've heard Jamie Carragher talk about the fact that actually that contract you were on was actually really bad and it made you one of the lowest paid players in the squad
3: yeah 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 so I mean, it wasn't really, it wasn't really bad. You know, it, I, I was still getting well paid, but it was, yeah, I was, I was probably, at the end of that contract, I was certainly one of the lowest players in the squad. Yeah. And I was arguing the best or the most important, but yes, yes. You know, they should have, in hindsight, they should, like they do now, they should have come to me two years, three, two and a half years prior and said, look, you're arguing about our, our most important player. We want to give you a new contract. And I probably would have stayed the fact that they didn't and yeah, they didn't yeah, yeah. and they kept on because maybe it was because I was a local lad, maybe because that's how they'd always done the business with the local lads. You know, the local lads probably have more loyalty towards them so they can exploit that little, that bit of loyalty a little bit more because we were, we, we were Liverpool born and bred and we always wanted to stay there. There was many things going on at the time as well. My mother was very ill as well. So it was a case of, there was a lot of, you know, there were a lot of balls in the air for me. And I just got to that point where it was like, right, I need to, um, you know i didn't want to i didn't want to continue in the premier league i needed to to go and it was whether i was going to go and play in italy or whether i was going to go and play in spain but i needed to sort of go and you know i had i had i hadn't played in the champions league and i i needed and i wanted to play in the champions
2: league it couldn't have worked out better although you turn up in a dressing room that Raul described at the time as a cesspit of lies treachery and whispers then you had players sold did you did
3: you was there a point when you turned up and you were like what have i signed up for no here? not at all because, funny enough, I think Raul had said that when, you know, sort of in the June, July, when I was going to join, or you know, he may yeah. have said it earlier, but by the time of August came, the transfer window was sort of closed. A lot of the players that he was speaking about had left uh, the right. likes of characters, you know, Miatovic, Davos Suka, uh, Christian Panucci, Clarence Seedorf left. I mean, I had about a month with Clarence, then he left. They were really big characters in, in the dressing room. I don't know whether they were the problem. I'm not saying they were, Yeah. but all I would say is, that movement of players out and then new, new players coming in I didn't feel anything like that at all um, the bosses in the dressing room because of those characters and they, they leaving and the nationalities that they were, the bosses in the dressing room became the Spanish yet again it was Manolo Sánchez it was Fernando Hierro, it was Raúl and they were embedded in, in the Real Madrid system so it, it instantly calmed back down again and the, you know, the rightful pecking order it started again could you speak Spanish when you are right like had you been no. learning sp- no yeah I had I, early on I, in the, the final year of my Liverpool contract I started speaking Italian because I thought I was going to go to an Italian team <laughs> oh, but, um, what a waste and of time then, I know and then uh, <laughs> the Italian teacher made fantastic pastries though so it was okay <laughs> And then once I decided that it was going to go to Spain, I started taking conversational Spanish. But then, you know, I used to have the teacher come round to my house. Um, but I was still living with my mother and father at the time because my mother was really ill. And then I curtailed them coming round because it just, you know, it just wasn't right. So by the time I got there, I knew was, you know, little little bits of Spanish, "Hello, how are you?" things like that, but not not anything extensive.
1: And was it? It must have been pretty lonely. I imagine you didn't have like kind of player liaison Very, back then. So what, no. what happens? You just get put in a flat, and it's like see you at training kind of thing.
3: No, it wasn't actually. Uh, um, it was to a certain extent. It was like that. I got there with my uh, my girlfriend now my wife, and what had happened is. Um. A couple of months prior, during the off season in England, once I'd finished the season, I actually went over secretly to Madrid. I mean, it's hard to do this in Madrid because the press know everything, especially about a new Real Madrid player. You cannot move without them knowing. But I went over with my wife and an interpreter and I looked at about 30 properties, flats, houses, because I wanted to move into a house as soon as possible. So I did like a, a full weekend of house hunting, found a house. Um, signed the papers and then I flew right back to England the press got me eventually because there were sightings of me around Madrid and the press got me at the airport leaving so by the time I came back six weeks later to start sort of pre-season training I stayed in a hotel but I was moving into the house and then what happens is I went on pre-season training for a couple of weeks to Austria where it was lonely I got put in a room with a Spaniard Manolo Cannaval who helped me out but he didn't speak English Um, there was a couple of players who spoke English in Uh, Christine Caronboe spoke English and Clarence Sadoff spoke English, but he left Clarence after a few more weeks. But I had pre-season with them and they helped me out. But otherwise I used to just stay up, sit with the Spanish lads. They'd go for a beer because that was their custom at the time. And I would sit with them and they'd smile and speak Spanish. And I'd just laugh and smile and put my thumbs up. And they knew knew I was okay because I joined, even though it was uncomfortable. But wow, it was incredibly lonely. And then when I came back from pre-season training... My wife was in this house and she virtually furnished it and the English television was in and, you know, my horse racing channel was in. So I'd come back and go home. So actually, I didn't live in a hotel with seven suitcases for three months, you know, wanting to put the walls. I was in a house and um, the best thing I could have done. I mean, my wife, you know, deserves medals for furnishing it and, you know, sorting everything out to make my life as as comfortable as, as it could be. You get you get to the European Cup final, two thousand.
2: Unsurprisingly, best player on the pitch. It's a final after yeah. all. <laughs> it, it, win three 0 over Valencia. Is there a point when you're on the pitch where you think I think I am?
3: I'm the be- I'm the man of the match here. I'm the best no, player on the pitch. God no. There's a, no, there was a point. No. There was a point where I thought, oh my God, we're going to win the Champions League because you never yeah. think you're going to win as I said to you before, unless you're way ahead. So at 1-0, at 2-0, you're always thinking the worst or you're always trying to avert the worst. But once we went 3-0 up, you know, I was like, wow. You know, the, you could see the faces and the body language of the opposition. We'd won. So then the last 15 minutes was quite, you know, ole, passing the ball around and all the ole signs going up. And you, you're not messing <laughs> around. You're not being disrespectful to the opposition, but you're sort of playing with a smile on your face. Um, and that was the most amazing feeling because you're just watching the clock just tick slowly down to get to ninety minutes before you can, you know, before you can celebrate and lift this incredible trophy. first UEFA Champions League final of the twenty-first century is an all-Spanish affair. Real Madrid take on finalist debutants Valencia in Sandanite. In by Roberto Carlos. Headed away, as far as McManaman! A moment of brilliance from Steve McManaman. And the England international, with both feet off the ground, volleys this into the bottom corner, near the midway point in the second half.
2: I mean, it must have been an incredible experience, but then at the end, end of the first season, a very different uh, incredible experience is the club has presidential elections. Lorenzo Sanz, and, who's the president, and then there's Florentino Perez, who, obviously, very famous. Um, and that's kind of the controversial election that um, happens with the Figo and everything that the documentary is about now. What was it like as a foreign player when that's going on? Like, it must have felt very, like, surreal as a thing to be overshadowing the club.
3: It was because you didn't... Because Lorenzo Sanz had won the European Cup twice in three years... You just thought it was, you know, impossible for him to lose. It was impossible. Yes. <laughs> yeah. but, um, So, you know, you, you win the European Cup, you, you go around the city, you get all the applause, it's blah, blah, blah. And then we went on holiday and I just didn't even think about the presidential elections because it's, it's, alien to, oh, really? it's alien to us in England about it. I knew mean, yeah. I mean the process of it, but I just thought, well, he's just won two Champions Leagues in three years. You know, how can people vote him out? But there must have been something there as well as... Florentino saying it by Luis Figo. There must be some, there must have been a lot of negativity uh, surrounding Lorenzo and his entourage as well. Because regardless of this new incumbent thinking, oh, I'm going to bring in Luis Figo, which at the time everybody just thought was, you know, gobbledygook and, you know, pie in the sky because Luis was such a, such a good player at Barca. You know, we just thought, oh, Lorenzo Sanz will win because that's what he, he probably will do. And then we'll just forget about it. And then, of course, Florentino wins, and then Luis walks through the door.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, but what, what change, when, when Florentino wins, does, does, that, does anything change immediately? No, no, Nothing?
3: No. We all stayed on our holidays, and we just didn't think anything would happen. You know, it's a, it's a strange thing in Spain. Every four years, these elections happen with these big teams. Uh, you know, and if you're doing badly, the team, you're going to get ousted. And if you're doing well, you probably stay. And, um, you know, the last president of Barcelona was, you know, accused of all kinds of s- schemes with money. So when the Porters back again, you know, Florentino, you know, the fact that he came in, we just thought, oh, you know, he'll try and run the club better than it once was and, you know, whatever it was. But it didn't. It never normally affects the team that
0: much, you know. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile.
2: you and yeah. well, I've, i was reading about this so you're not given a squad number but you're told you're leaving but you refuse to leave that is just like that's such a ballsy decision and yeah, such I'm, a strong decision yeah, I, i'm yeah
3: i think a lot of it was uh overblown in england i think because there right. wasn't a lot of press coverage and there wasn't a lot of um tv coverage at the time but yes he came in and instantly wanted to try and um lower the wage bill i think so he was just trying right. to sell players left right and center so he, he did sell uh, Fernando Redondo, which was awful because he was one of the main players. And then there were stories that he wanted to sell me. But, you know, I've said this before when I spoke to him, he never once said to me that he wants me to, you know, that he wants to sell me. And it was never a case of me not getting a squad number. I think it was just all, you know, backroom mutterings, you know, and maybe they were trying to sell me secretly. But you can't sell anybody without them telling you, you know. So you've <laughs> yeah. got agents coming to me saying, "Do you want to go to X team?" And I'm like, "Well, no." And they're like, "Okay," you know. And that was it. Yeah, so um, it wasn't as big as it. Yeah, was it wasn't as, at the time when you when you were me. It wasn't as big. It was awkward. But when you got Vincent, de, the Vincent de Bosque saying to me, "Don't worry about it." It's you know, it's this happens all the time and stuff. You know that that was enough for me. I wasn't reading the Spanish press or listening to all the Spanish radio and yeah. getting involved in it all. You know, if the president came up to me and said, listen, you have to go, we want to sell you. He had to pay me four years of my deal, so he's not saving any money. He wouldn't have, <laughs> would have had to pay me. So, it's, um, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it was just... Um, it was it, i think it's better as a, a you know as as a story really than what really happens
1: did it take a lot of getting used to that kind because of, i guess playing for real madrid i imagine it can be quite a poisonous atmosphere almost because all the press are all these rumors there's constant rumors and whispers about everybody like and, and in the dressing room are you talking about all these rumors and whispers all the time
3: like do yeah. you do, yeah, sometimes I mean the players were saying to me, like Raul, who's one of the, you know, sort of the leaders, even though he was relatively young, said, Oh, don't worry about it. You know, this is not this is nothing. This is Real Madrid. And if you go there, you see back when I was there, and it's the same now, you know, the most important papers at um, the market and as they're the two sports papers, and the first 10, 15 pages are dominated by Real Madrid. So you have every bit of nonsense in there. You know, your haircut's changed. (laughs) You came in with a new pair of trainers on. You came in in a new car. You know, anything to fill the mountains of pages that that they have. So, you know, these stories, particularly in the summer months when they can't talk about football because there wasn't any, it's just filled with rumour after rumour and story after story. And he said that and they said this and he responded with this. And, you know, I, I was just, I just let it all sail over my head, to be honest, unless the right people said to me, We've got a problem here, and that never materialised. So, one of the
2: main things we playing for Real Madrid is obviously that you play in clasicos, mm. particularly where well, you're on the bench, but you were there for the Figo returning to yeah. the new camp one as well. Yeah, are those games just like nothing else? And that one in particular must have been yeah. something else,
3: like nothing I've ever seen or witnessed them, you know, in my life. Really, I mean, I'm it, it never ever bothered me things like that. But that particular time, there was other times as well against other options where. You know, of course, we're in a city centre hotel. They're ringing your phones all night, beeping the <laughs> horns all night, which is which is fine. I, I get that. I'm not interested in that. But then when you get on the coach to go to games, you know, you'll have armed um, police running alongside the coach, you know, with, not with, you know, with guns out like this, you know. <laughs> and then we got to a certain part before we went, certainly went down to under the stadium at Barcelona where the police had to leave you. And then we all, you know, we... The curtains in these windows through the curtains, and then we all concertina it in the middle of the coach. Oh my god, and then all the windows just went bang, 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 bang. and the oh windows were all like smashed, and then you sort of went under the cup under the ground, then to safety, and you just think <laughs> I was just laughing. I'm laughing, you know. But the adrenaline inside you, when you go, ooh, ooh, my <clears> yeah. It was just surreal. You know, that never happened in England. It would never, ever happen in England. You know, in Liverpool, Man United games or, you know, whatever the biggest rivalry would have, that would never, ever happen. But it did there. And it happens on a number of occasions when we went to La Coruña up in, up in the north. Windsor get smashed and things like that on the coach, on the way to games. Oh, so um, very volatile at that particular game. And of course... Throw throwing the added throw the add- the spice of Luis, and it was
2: just... Yeah. A, what was he like on the day? Was he nervous? Do, do you remember him being yeah. particularly different? I mean,
3: to... Luis is cool as you like. He, isn't, he is now, and he was then. And um he had to be. He had to be, Josh. He had to be shitting himself, really, because he was going back, and he knew what was going to happen. You know, he knew how they were going to respond. He knew how volatile it was going to be. So he had to be, you know, he, yeah. even though he played it cool and in you know, in, in the documentary you mentioned he's, he's walking in surrounded by security, you know, it, you, you wouldn't know what he was doing, you wouldn't know whether he was going to the shop or whether he was going to Barcelona again. His face is just nice and relaxed. But, you know, you always knew it was one, going to be one of those atmospheres. And a year later, it was the same, another an, another case of when we went back, the game was suspended and all this and all that. So, it, um, okay. you know, it wasn't just that one that one particular game. You were there for loads, of, like, Figo was like the start of the Galactico yeah.
2: era, and then loads of them coming, like, and it's just all these stars were there when you were there. Are you still in touch? Is, is there a WhatsApp group with there is. Dan and...
3: Is <laughs> there? There is a WhatsApp group, yeah. There wow. Who's on it? Every, well, uh, everyone, really. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of the players who I didn't play with, a lot of the old players, if that makes sense, you know, yeah. a lot of them are on, and I still play, like, sort of... Um, you know, for the old boys, the veterans games, the legends games, whatever you want to call it, I still go over and play. You know, I still go over to um, to, to to Madrid a lot. I'm like a La Liga ambassador, so I go over and see a lot of my ex-players. But, you know, I, as I said, I was speaking to Luis the other day. Uh, I still speak to him a lot. He still lives in Madrid. So when I go to Madrid, I catch up with a lot of people. But, that's yeah, there's a, there's a lot of players on the, um, on the WhatsApp group. Oh, Is wow. there
1: anyone on the WhatsApp group that's surprisingly funny? In real life, they're, like a lot of those Gladiators, feel quite
3: serious. Oh no, they were all great. To be very honest, you know, uh, the the more professional these players are, sort of the more relaxed they are. I always feel because they're yeah. so confident in what they do. Yeah. So people used to say to me, "Oh, what's he like? Was he any egos? What was he like?" And I used to just go, "They were brilliant. You know, Luis was fantastic. Zizou was amazing. He was quiet, Zizou, because when he entered the dressing room." He only spoke French and Italian. Yeah. So he was sort of the lonely person trying to, you know, seek solace in a French-speaking player. Um, when Ronaldo came in, he was just, you know, of course, a bundle of energy, a breath of fresh air, always with a smile on his face. You know, he's a fantastic character. Um but the most important thing, there was no egos in them all. No really? everybody got on, That's uh, everybody got on really well. And they all knew that, you know, we'll have a laugh and a joke, but as soon as we sort of Go to go and cross over the white line. You know it's it's business, and that's what, that. That was the attitude that they all had. So I always I, find it, I always find it quite easy to play with the the better, oh, more professional yeah. players because you yeah. don't need you don't need telling. Yeah, they yeah, when, yeah. You know when to mess around, and you know when to
2: turn it on. When Real Madrid played Liverpool in the, I mean, you were there in the mm. Champions League
3: final. Where's your heart in that situation this, this year? Well, to be honest, yeah. this year and in Ukraine, I, it was with Liverpool. Yeah. I, Madrid had won it a lot. It's 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 hard, Josh, because I've said it on numerous occasions the the people who worked at Real Madrid when I was there, you know, and I went there in, in ninety nine twenty, they're still there now. The kit men are the same kit men. Some of the wow. physios are still there. So they're, they're really really good friends of mine. I adore them yeah. and I adore the families. So to actually choose between Liverpool, because I work at Liverpool now and I work at the academy, so I know Jürgen very well and I know a lot of the players. So to actually choose between this family and this family, it, it was hard. They were yeah. really, I went with Liverpool, of course. I'm back in England and I, I work with Liverpool more. And Madrid have won it so many times that yeah. you know, Liverpool could do with winning it a couple of more times. So that was the only thing. But, you know, when Real Madrid won, I was very happy because to see a load of You know a load of people who are new. As I said, these these kit men who have gotten older and have gotten weaker, but Madrid have always kept them on and just brought in younger people to help them. So the the squad, the the, you know the kit men size has grown rather than stacking them and bringing someone fit in. So to see them doing well, and I know that they'll get a bonus for the team winning the 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 Champions League. You know, just thrills me as well.
2: It's amazing, isn't it? The biggest club in the world, but it feels like yeah, yeah. You're just on I mean, a WhatsApp Liverpool, with them.
3: Liverpool, you know, <laughs> Liverpool and Madrid are very similar in that respect. Very yeah. family-orientated. People have worked there for 20, 25, 30 years. And I love that about the both clubs.
1: Um, I've got an indulgent question. This is from me. I was at Alvin Martin's Testimonial in 1995. Oh, I'm yes, a fan. I'm yeah. And you came out in a West Ham kit. Best player I'd ever seen in a West Ham kit. How on earth did you get roped into that? Jamie Redknapp, I <laughs> yeah. imagine?
3: Red, Red has told us. I mean, Alvin was a scouser, wasn't he, back then? And now, yeah. you know, I was very close with Jamie and Harry and everything. And they asked me to play. That's another way of, actually, going back and, you know, when you talk before about signing photographs, I sign a lot of those ones where I've got that West Ham kit. No way, do <laughs> you? know, you go back and you go, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that game. <laughs> But so, yeah, I was more than happy to play in a game like that for Alvin. He was a superstar, wasn't he? But I, I always I thought at the time, like, how have Liverpool allowed this? Like, how has this happened? I have no idea. Maybe you have to all... ask permission? you just turn up? No, I'd, ask, I'd always ask permission in case I got injured. <laughs> but yeah, um, I can't even remember the surroundings. You, set, you be... set up
1: a goal. You set it up a goal. Do you remember right? that? Yeah. I, it, must
3: have, it must have involved Red Redknapp and Harvey, <laughs> and, and I, def, I definitely would have asked Liverpool for, for, for permission. But yeah, I, I still see pictures of them, and it makes me chortle, Actually,
2: uh, we always end on the same final question, which is: If you could go back to January the first, nineteen ninety, press the button to do it all again, would you do it?
3: Oh God, yes! Relive all, relive all these wonderful things again. I haven't. Seeing my children born and getting married and winning all those trophies and oh, spending wow. my time in Madrid, absolutely, mate, no problem at all. Oh, oh, Steve, it's You're been right. an absolute pleasure. Thank you for doing it. Cheers, boys, no worries.
2: Cheers. Nice up with Cheers. Thanks, Steve. Lovely. Good luck tonight. Thank you to Steve. What a lovely, lovely man. Oh, but again, some of the best episodes we've ever done have been in this series. I genuinely believe that. Yeah, I've absolutely loved. Thank you for everyone we've interviewed this series. There's been some absolutely brilliant episodes. Now, do you want a uh, a new quiz style game that we've uh, been sent? This is a good game. So I basically it's blackjack. You're all aware, of blackjack twenty-one. Yeah. Hello, lads. End of the episode quiz for you. This is from Jamie Barkway. It's called Goal Score Blackjack. The rules are. Each player will take it in turn. You're given a top-flight season, and then you name two players to hit 21 goals. You've got to hit 21 goals, and then you can add players. It's basically like blackjack, but with the amount of goals players scored. Happy with that? Yeah. What season shall we go with? We're going to go with 95, 96. Ooh. Okay. Same rules of blackjack. You go bust if you go over 21. What we'll do? You start with two. You start with two players, like like blackjack. And then you can take it in turns to decide whether it's a stick or twist. So, Michael, who would you like as your two players? Uh, So, what did you say? 95-96? Yeah.
4: Jesus Christ, that's difficult. Uh, I'm going to say... I'm going to say Eric Cantona.
2: Yeah. And I'm going to say Dennis Irwin. You've gone Eric Cantona. That's 14 goals. Are you worried that's a bit high, Michael? No, I figured he'd be around there and... I was hoping Irwin had chipped in with maybe three or four and I could stick at two cards. Dennis Irwin scored one goal. So you're on 15, which is never an easy number on oh, blackjack. Chris, well. which two players do you want? <laughs> so I actually think I can get 21. Okay,
1: go on. Cocky. I think Julian Dix and Tony Cotty, I, I have a vague memory there, they were joint top scorers. Well, that's not going to add up to 21, because twenty-one's an odd number. But no, I think, but I think... They were close.
2: I think Julian Dix might have eleven, and Tony Cotty might have a ten. Or you know, I think Julian I think- Dix scored ten goals. Yeah, this is an incredible play. And Tony Cotty scored 11? 10 goals. You're on twenty. Oh. wow, that's yeah. i doffed my cap. Do you want a stick?
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> go for the one, you pussy.
2: Okay, <laughs> <laughs> well, can I go for one. Well, I can, I can, I can pick one more player. I'm going to go gonna say now. I'm adding another rule. Because otherwise you could just keep going for players that score very few goals until you hit twenty-one. You, if you get a player who scores zero, you go bust. That's a good rule. Okay. Yeah, that's, wow. a, that's a good rule. Otherwise, otherwise you could just slowly work your way up. Oh, like this
1: is this is interesting. Oh, I tell you what, I think I've got one. I think I've got one. who has got one goal. All
2: right. Well, it's Michael. It's Michael's turn okay. first. So, Michael, you're on fifteen. Do you want to twist? Well, I have to, obviously, because you have to. Yeah, yeah. I
4: was just, I was just playing the
2: game, Michael. <laughs>
4: That that kind of chat at the table in Vegas will get you some filthy lips.
2: <laughs> do you want to twist? <laughs> what the fuck do you think? <laughs>
4: okay, so five um, five minimum, six really. Oh, okay, I'm going to stick with United just you know for oh, the spirit yeah. of it. Who else? Tricky with the go-to players from the class of '92 there. Sort of, oh, some yeah. of them played a lot more than they did. You've got that's a real transitional season. I can't see season. Beckham scoring more than six goals in the season. No, they? he probably wouldn't have been first choice for free kicks at that point. Oh, okay, I'm going to say, oh, the, no, he's probably scoring too many by that point. Are these league goals. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to roll the dice. It's on one of two players, and I'm going to go for Roy Keane.
2: Roy Keane a good game this. Skull, how are you feeling about that option? Oh, I think I've gone bust. But
1: it's a good, I think, I think it's a really good, it's a really Michael. good. Michael. You're looking yeah. at it five. Oh no. It's six. Oh! <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. Wow. That's piled the pressure off. So Skull, you need one. This is so hard. This is so hard. Um...
2: It's one of the greatest moments of This life. is a...
4: <laughs>
1: oh, God, this is such a the big one.
2: The Irwin Keane 21, is oh, it? Oh,
1: man, 21.
2: What did Paul Scholes have out of interest? Well, Chris might go for him, so I can't tell you. Well, he's, he, he's welcome to, because he's definitely got one-on-one. <laughs> one. <laughs> Do you want to go Paul Scholes, Chris?
1: No, 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 no. He scored no, 10 goals. Yeah, OK, good. I'm going to go
2: in 16 appearances. Oh, wow. Is 10 subs plus goal? 10 subs. Yeah. Still, still a, still
1: still a good
4: record there.
1: Yeah. I'm going to go with... Uh, I've, Ian Dowie's playing for us that season, but he's definitely scoring more than one. I'm going to have Mark, to rush you. I'm, I'm going to go with Danny Williamson. Danny Williamson scores an unbelievable goal that season. He's both sc- he both stuck clubs. Whole, yeah, and... Uh, oh he runs the whole length of the pitch and scores and I can't think of him scoring any other goal that season
2: okay Tony oh, Williamson no. played 28 appearances and one sub for West well, Ham oh no that's a lot that's five a lot. yellow cards <laughs> oh no
1: no 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 it's too many
2: and four goals oh, four oh, goals no. on the front oh, <laughs> that, that that is
4: that felt like United you know, against Bayern Munich in 99 <laughs> I, absolutely I, was, I, it. I was out for the count
2: oh no there we go that well, is a shame.
4: Uh, Do you know what? You got
1: Samuel Cafford pounding the pitch, but deep down, I've got to respect that.
2: Yeah, very well done. What would you like to go out on, Michael?
4: In an act of uh, sportsmanship, I'm going to uh, I'm going to choose I'm forever blowing bubbles.
2: Ah, oh, um, I don't think we've ever played down this ever, have we?
4: I don't think we have, no.
2: Well. If you would like to sign up to Another Slice for more and our World Cup coverage, go to anotherslice.com forward slash quicklykevin. Otherwise, we'll be back next week with the end of season quiz. Until next time.
1: Oh, man, man, what a man to sign off with with this in the background. Stuart Slater. See you later.